بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا أن هدانا الله الحمد لله على نعمة الإسلام وكفى بها نعمة الحمد لله على منة الولاية وكفى بها منة وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن سيدنا وعظيمنا وحبيب قلوبنا النبي المؤيد والرسول المسدد والمصطفى الأمجد والمحمود الأحمد حبيب إله العالمين أبي القاسم محمد صلوات الله وسلامه عليه وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين المعصومين سفن النجاة الأعلام من ركب سفينتهم نجا ومن تخلف عنها هلك وغرق ثم أما بعد respected sisters, brothers, elders, scholars السلام عليكم جميعا ورحمة الله وبركاته as you are aware, we've been speaking about the 12 points that form the objectives of our mission as Muslims and followers of Ahlul Bayt salawatullah wa salamuhu alayhim ajma'in. And thus far, we've been able to cover just the first two points of what constitute the objectives of this particular uh, mission statement that we explained at large why do we need a mission statement and why do we need an agenda being a nation that has been brought out to mankind as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala stated in the Quran, being a median nation and a nation that witnesses what uh, uh, they've been given in terms of a duty against other nations and then they will end up having the Prophet sallallahu as a witness either for them or against them. Point three that I started yesterday but I did not have enough time to continue explaining what it is, namely the, uh, what I said yesterday to equip Muslims with sound knowledge about the Quran and Ahlul Bayt salawatullah wa salamuhu alayhim ajma'in. In order to appreciate and understand this faith that we have, we need to connect to our book. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when he left this world, he said in the most emphatic and clear words to his ummah, inni tarikum fikum istiqlain. كتاب الله وعترتي أهل بيتي ما إن تمسكتم بهما فلن تضلوا بعدي أبدا Surely I'm leaving behind the two weighty things The book of Allah on one hand And my family members on the other hand If you hold fast to them You shall never be led astray And then the Prophet mentioned something very interesting He said وَإِنَّهُمَا لَنْ يَفْتَرِقَا حَتَّى يَرِيدَا عَلَيْهِ الْحَوْلِ and they will never be separated from one another. Meaning, the book of Allah and Ahlul Bayt will never be separated from one another until I meet them again at the river of Al-Kawthar, the river of abundance in Akhir. Why this particular addition at the end is very important? Because it corroborates your faith in the Imams. If Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam talks about the Quran as something physical. This Quran is a physical thing that I can touch and see and read or not. It is, right? I can, it's here in my hand. It's a physical entity. So if the Prophet says, this physical entity must have a physical entity from the family of the Prophet, right? The Quran and Ahlul Bayt will never be separated. That means you have to have a living Imam, right? Otherwise, where is the connection? 
Are you following? If there is no living imam, how could the prophet say that there will be a Quran and Ahlul Bayt always at the same time? And they will never separate until they meet back at the river of abundance. That means there have to be a physical presence of a member of Ahlul Bayt, salawatullah wasalamuhu alayhim ajma'in, in order to corroborate the sayings of the Prophet. And that goes to prove the presence of the 12 Imam Sahib al Asr wa Zaman, Ajalallah ta'ala farajahu sharif. Our knowledge, however, of the Quran should not be based on what we think the interpretation of the Quran is. It has to be based on the legitimate, authentic, reliable ahadith and narrations that we have inherited in the body of ahadith through the chain of Ahlul Bayt, salawatullahi wa salamu ajma'in, right? Because this Quran cannot be translated or interpreted by everyone. Because we have people who made an attempt to translate the Quran and they said that there are some verses in the Quran that cannot be interpreted except in the literal way. And that led to having an interpretation of God that ascribed certain things to Allah and attributes that Allah cannot have. For example, the hand of Allah is over their hands. They interpret that particular verse literally, meaning that Allah has what? Allah has a hand. Huh? Oh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, He can see you. Allah can see you. These interpreters of the Quran say he can see you with the naked eye. Allah has an eye? Ajeeb. When Allah will put his leg in hellfire so that the mushrikeen will be asked to make sujood for the leg of Allah. Allah has a leg and he will put in hellfire? Ajeeb. In absence of the interpretation of Ahlul Bayt, that's what will happen to the Quran. We will attribute part to Allah. Falsely, we'll attribute. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when it came to the Quran, he summed up the whole debate about himself and how he looks or doesn't look. He said in the Quran, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, there is nothing like unto Allah. Meaning, and that verse, by the way, there is nothing like unto Allah. In our Islamic Quranic signs, it's called muhkam. Muhkam means what? Muhkam, it means it cannot be interpreted any other way than what the ayah means. So when Allah says, there is nothing like unto Allah, and then we have another ayah that says Allah has a hand, then we have to interpret the hand on the basis of what? Of that muhkam ayah, that, which says there is nothing like unto God. When we interpret that Allah has a hand in the Quran, based on that ayah, then we are clear to say that Allah could not have a hand. Because he said there is nothing like him, right? 
So how do we interpret the word hand? We interpret metaphorically, meaning the ability and the power of Allah is over their power. Not the physical hand of Allah, right? Not the physical hand, right? Of Allah, like these people are trying to con us into believing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has an eye, or Allah has a leg, or Allah is sitting on the throne just like me. He is sitting on the throne and he is so fat that the meat of his body is overflowing from the arch. Is this God or Buddha? What are we talking about? We're talking about Allah and we are attributing body parts to Allah. You know, that's what happened when we abandon Ahlul Bayt and we don't understand what the Quran is trying to see. When we look and focus at the Quran further and further, we find that many of the interpretation of the Quran that has been made by certain exegists, right, contradict the ahadith of Ahlul Bayt, salawatullahi wa salamu alayhim ajma'in. And then we stand in bewilderment, in confusion. Should we believe this interpretation or should we consult Ahlul Bayt who have the knowledge of the Quran? Imam Ali says in one of his statements, Ask me before you lose me. For by Allah, I know the path into heaven more than the path on earth. And by Allah, I know each and every ayah in the Quran, whether it is abrogated, non-abrogated, whether it was revealed by day, whether it was revealed by night, whether it was revealed for the Prophet for a particular law, or it was a general law. He says, I know everything about the Quran and let me answer your queries when it comes to the Quran. After all this, I would go and consult someone who tells me that Allah has a hand or Allah has a leg or Allah has a body. This is what we need to do. We need to understand the Quran in light of the teachings of Ahlul Bayt. Then, on top of that, we need to understand what Ahlul Bayt wants from us. Whatever they've done, we have to follow. We cannot just interpret Islam according to our own wishes and desires. When it suits us, we will follow the Islam that Ahlul Bayt have taught us. And when it doesn't suit us, we will replace the Islam of Ahlul Bayt with something that of less value that suits my life. Right? That's for example. For example, Allah in the Quran says, this is a law, a law by Allah in order to organize families in this world. He says, when there is a dispute and you cannot reconcile the marriage of a husband and a wife, Allah commands the men and says to them, do not leave your wife hanging. Meaning, you neither divorce her no, you would live with her. And then you say what? Allah is saying what? Don't leave her hanging. Right? What do we say to Allah? We take an oath on his book. And I'll say to my wife, Wallah, by God, I'm going to leave you hanging. And I will never divorce. Are you answering back to Allah? Allah is telling you, don't leave her hanging. And you say, no, Allah, I'm going to leave her hanging. Ajeeb. What audacity is this? 
Allah is saying, don't do it. And you say, I'm going to do Why? Because I'm going to give her hell the way she gave me hell. Why? Because I will never let her get married again since she was my wife. This is Islam? This is Islam? You know? Oh, you know what? I will not divorce her. I'll keep her hanging until she forfeits her dowry. You know? Until she says, you know what? Just divorce me for the God's sake. I don't want the dowry. He says, yeah, now I will consider it. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. This is Islam. You know, the dowry of a wife, from an Islamic point of view, in the ahadith of the Prophet and Ahlul Bayt, is more of a debt that we will be asked about on the day of judgment more than the money of an orphan. Just put this in our mind. More than using the money of an orphan unjustly. And then our woman say, Islam did not give us our right. Ajib. If men abuse the Quranic rights, it's not Islam that haven't given you rights. It is the men who are not practicing their Islam right. right? And a bit of advice to my sisters. Bit of advice. So that you don't go into this drama. Right? When you get married, demand your dowry in advance. Sorry, men. Sorry. Okay? Sorry. Salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. I think I will be called back to Toronto by the women, but not by the men. Salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. This is your right. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given this right to you and you can use it the way you want so take advantage of your rights in islam number four to promote change within our community to ensure its progress and development on a clear and proper platform meaning what there is a statement that one of the uh, scholars of islam said he said man yahmilu risala Meaning, whosoever have a concern for the message of Islam, he will become creative in the way he preaches it. He does not stop at conventional ways of preaching Islam. No, he becomes creative. He will invent everything in his imagination in order to make sure that I can deliver the message in my community in the best possible way. For example, we all appreciate, and yesterday his eminence said, uh, Hussein Qazwini said, which is an, an amazing point that he raised in the Q&A, he said that we should be privileged that we have every year something called the 10th day of Muharram, which basically represent some sort of a conference right which no other community on the face of earth has something similar right or wrong right right or wrong it's like a conference we come here we meet for 10 nights to learn to absorb to practice to put into you know a, a practical way of life all the teachings of the quran and ahlul bayt but sometimes this alone after the month of Muharram ends is not enough, right? So how do we substitute the majalis when they end in Muharram? 
We need to think and plan ahead and make other programs that will become what? That will become inviting in particular for our youth. For example, workshops, not lecture. Why workshops? Why? Because workshops are interactive, right? It's not only me or the speaker talking to the audience. No, the speaker and the audience are talking to one another. And that is more engaging. Because now I will probe into your mind and you will probe back into my mind. And then we can expand on what is available to us in as far of how we can become creative in delivering the message of Islam to our youth. Huh? For example, camps. How else, you know, let me say this and accept it from me as a humble servant of this community. If we really want to ensure that our daughters and our sons marry inside Islam, inside the Shia faith, inside the community, then we need to provide facilities for interaction in a halal way between our women and our boys and our girls in order to be able to facilitate halal ways of meeting so that marriages can take place. Right or wrong? Right? For example, for example, and this is the paradox, the paradox of what we do. I am as a father, I will take my daughter to university and I will say, hey, you can, you can study. And because you are at university, obviously, logically, you're going to talk to Michael or John or Albert. But you, if you marry any of them, I'll kill you. Right? And then I bring the same daughter to the center and I say, you cannot talk to Jafar, you cannot talk to Mustafa, you cannot talk to Ali, but you have to marry them. How? How? If I can't talk to the man I'm going to share my life with, how will I marry him? And then the one I spent 18 years of my life studying with, I can't marry him. I now understand him inside out, right? I know him inside out. Of course, the reason why you can't marry him because he's not a Muslim. But, but logically, now I know him better than my own community members, right? So how do we facilitate this? How do we facilitate this? In one of, in some of our centers, for example, I proposed an idea to the management. You know, and it's great that I can actually approach my management and talk to them and not impose on them, but talk to them. The channels of communications between community members or, for example, the youth of our community as part and subgroup of the management is healthy exchange of ideas. For example, in Sydney, we decided to nominate four dates in the Islamic calendar that have some sort of a joyful uh, uh, background to it. So we chose the birthday of the Prophet, the birthday of Imam Ali, the marriage of Imam Ali and Sayyida Fatima, the birth of Imam al-Mahdi. Good. What do we do with this four births? We organize a cruise, a cruise ship into the sea. We hire the whole boat, four or five hundred people, and we invite families with their children of marriage age to come and have a halal Islamic night 
with lectures, quizzes, debates, where the parents are there and our children are interacting in a halal, meaningful way. Okay? So far, anything haram in that? Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alam. Every time we had a cruise between eight to nine, to, between eight to 15 proposal would happen in every cruise we had. So what we have done, we facilitated the medium of marriage within our own community. Camps, instead of having camps for one day, a day trip, we will make it a three day trip. We will also invite the parents to participate in that, right? And we will invite our children as well. And we will have separate fun activities so that the girls can have swimming during summer, whatever, right? They can have uh, abseiling, all right? You find a place where it caters for these kind of sports. So separate session. But then we will have a common session. Workshop, lectures, salah, all right? Where now they can talk to one another under the supervision of the parents and the organizers. That will lead also to knowing one another and for proposal to take place. Because if we don't allow a venue for our children to interact intellectually, they cannot get to know one another and feel the attraction for marriage. How would I know that this girl is actually marriage material? How would I know that this man is actually marriage material? Right? If I don't talk to him, if I don't probe into his mind, right? In a halal environment, in a good setup, in order that this may, may lead to a marital, healthy marital situation. So these are some of the thoughts that we can incorporate in order to promote positive change within our community. No one is saying at all to break any of the laws of Islam when it comes to the question of interaction, right? When it comes to the question of interaction. Number five, to advocate and clear misconceptions about Islam to non-Muslims and our community and the wider community. One of the most classic examples of that, classic example of that, is that men are superior to women in Islam. One of the biggest lies, right? One of the biggest lies that they've been fabricating against us through the concept of Islamophobia is that women have no status in Islam. Hold on, hold on. I think Khadija employed Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, right? Mm. Khadija, sallallahu alayhi was a businesswoman. She gave work to the Prophet, and then she ended up what? Marrying him, Ajib. Islam does not allow interaction. <laughs> Islam does not. Islam says a woman cannot ask for a man's hand in marriage. Ajib. But you know the daughters of Shu'aib. You know, Shu'aib was a prophet. He had two daughters, right? Musa escapes Pharaoh, comes towards the city of Shu'aib, goes and finds a place where he's resting. All of a sudden, he's watching a group of men watering their herds at a pond. At a pond. And then he sees two women standing to the side, trying to keep their sheep away so that they don't have to go and mix with the men. With the men, right? 
So Musa looks at them, he says, what is this? Where's the chivalry of these men? Can't they just at least let the women come water their head and then they will water whatever they want? So he goes to the two women, prophet of Allah, goes to the two women. He said, can I ask you kindly, give me your herds, give me your sheep, I will go and water them for you and you stay where you are. Thank you, Jazakallah khair. He takes the sheep, he waters them. Now, when Musa wanted to enter the pond, he, show, he showed a bit of strength. Okay? Musa, they describe him as someone that had white shoulders. He was very well built. He had like a very physical appearance to him. He was well built. It's like someone who's been to the gym. Right? So he pushed through and he watered the herd and came back and handed over the sheep to the two women straight away the two women went home and when they got home listen to the conversation listen parents to the conversation of the girls with who Shuaib Shuaib now is a father or a prophet father prophet right father prophet so that one of the daughters said oh dad hire him he said hire who she said i saw a man who was so good he's the one who watered our herd she said ah that's why you came home early today because normally they wait until everyone finishes she said ah that's why you came early here so tell me about that man she said i don't know this man came to us and he was very well respected very honorable she saw us that we are standing aloof he asked us to take the sheep to water them and we gave them and then he came back. He didn't ask for anything. He put his ha head down and he said, he's your herd. Thank you so much. Go home. So I'm telling you all that this guy is a good guy. This guy is marriage material. Right? The girl is telling the, her father, this Musa is marriage material. قالت يا أبت استأجره. She said, oh dad, hire him. Because the best person you hire for this job is someone who's powerful and what? Trustworthy. Allahu Akbar. Trustworthy. He's marriage material. So he says to his daughter, go call him. Go call him. So he goes. He comes. He said, who are you? He said, I'm Musa. He said, Prophet Musa? He said, yes. He said, where did you come from? He said, I came from Egypt. I escaped from Pharaoh. He said, best thing you've done. Now, you are safe in my house now and in this city. Let's put this aside. There is more business I want to talk with you. What is the business you want to talk to me? He said, I want you. The father now proposes to Musa. He proposes. He said, Uridu an I want you, I want to give you in marriage one of my daughters. Moses said, seriously? He says, yes. He said, how? He said, she likes you. This daughter likes you. He says, why? She said, because she found two qualities in you. You are strong and you are trustworthy. Would you accept? He said, yes. What do you want, Dari? He said, you served me for eight years. 
He served me to water the herd because Shu'aib was old for eight years. Look what uh, uh, Musa said. He said, no. Listen, girls, listen. Listen about your value. He said, no, no, no. Your girl is very, very respectful, and I tested her on the way. She is very respectful. He said, so what do you want? He said, I, I will not save you for eight. I will save you for ten. Two more years out of my respect to your daughter. Ajeeb. Look at the Quran. Look at the beauty of the Quran. Look how the Quran brings people together and families together on the basis of what? That this man has three mansions and has 13 cars. Every time he changes a suit, he changes a car with it. No, no, that doesn't matter. Rasulullah says, If a suitor comes to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage and you are pleased with two qualities, two qualities, what are they? His religiosity and his religiosity not by theory, by practice. He's trustworthy. He doesn't lie. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't take bribe. He has akhlaq. All right? He prays. He fasts. He's an all-rounder. He's an all-rounder. Do you know what an all-rounder? You guys don't play cricket? You don't play cricket. Do you see cricket? Oh, you're boring. You don't, you're not Aussies. That's why. Okay? You're not Aussies. Okay? An all-rounder in cricket is given to a player who can bat, ball, and field. So he knows everything about the game. So you need a Muslim who is what? An all-rounder. Yes. Not just good at one thing. He's an all-rounder. Like Musa, salamullah alayhi, was. So he said, the Prophet said, Ida atakum, when a suitor comes to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage, and you are happy with his religiosity and his akhlaq, Give your daughters to him in marriage. Because if you don't do that, you will create mischief on earth. Because that will lead to fornication, zina, promiscuity, dating. Because you will not facilitate the medium of marriage. Right? Where else would boys and girls go then? They will seek, seek it in haram. That's why the prophet said, you will create mischief if you don't bring men and women into a marriage setup. Okay? Imam al-Kadhim, salawatullah wa salamu sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Imam al-Kadhim has a similar statement, but he changes one word, one word in the hadith. Imam al-Kadhim said, like his grandfather, Rasulullah, إِذَا أَتَاكُمْ مَنْ تَرْضَوْنَ دِينَهُ and now he changes another word. وَأَمَانَتَهُ If a suitor comes to you asking for your daughter's hand in marriage and you are pleased with his religiosity, but he doesn't say akhlaq now because akhlaq could be in religion, right? So he says, and he is trustworthy. Ameen. Ameen. He's trustworthy. You know why trustworthy? Trustworthy because when I give my daughter in marriage to someone, my daughter now is a trust in his hand. If he's not trustworthy for that trust, he will abuse that trust or not. 
He will abuse her physically, emotionally, psychologically, financially, and that is not someone that can be trusted with a jewel that I've raised all my life as a father, right or wrong, or as a mother. I need to put that trust in the hand of someone that is what? Trustworthy. Not someone that every day he sees her after a year of marriage, God damn the day my mother introduced you to me. It was the worst day of my life. Really? Really now? Now all of a sudden it's the worst day of your life. Huh? I wish I never listened to my mom. It was a disaster decision. Oh, wow. You know what the prophet says? The prophet says, when you marry someone who is good, he will do one of two things. He will do one of two things. If he loved your daughter, he will be immensely generous towards her. And if he happens to be displeased with her, he will never abuse her in his home. He will never abuse her in his home. He will still treat her honorably, even if he is displeased with her qualities. Because he's a good person. You know why he's a good person? Because when he deals with his wife, he's not dealing in terms of goodness towards her for her own personal entity. No, he is doing good by her because he is Allah bound. He is what? Allah bound. Meaning, he has a duty to Allah first before the duty to his wife. And he cannot violate his duty to Allah by abusing that girl. This is Islam. This is how we should treat our daughters and our children. Because it's reciprocal. Right? It is reciprocal. And the people who can help in that a great deal are also the parents. Especially in-laws on each side. If we really want marriage to continue in a healthy way, in-laws should only interfere in good. Not in bad. Right? Not in bad. Not to stir up situations. You know? Not to make issues for the husband so that, you know, uh, uh, they create some sort of tension inside the household. No. Mothers-in-law, fathers-in-law should not escalate a problem between their, their son-in-law and their daughter-in-law. No. On the contrary. If there is a problem, they should try to work it out and not add fuel to fire. Which sometimes, unfortunately, happens in our communities. So, this is how we advocate mis another misconception. Women, what is wrong with this one today? Okay. Women, for example, uh, they get less inheritance than men. Not all the time. Not all the time. You know, there is a time where the woman will inherit everything and even her uncle from her, her paternal uncle or her maternal uncle will not get a cent. When? If the parents die and they only have daughters, none of the extended family members can have access to that man in our school of thought, to that money in our school of thought. Do you know that? The woman, the girls will take everything, the whole estate, the whole estate if the father dies. And his brothers will not inherit him. Do you know that? His brothers, brothers, his own siblings, if he died and he has a daughter, even one daughter, she will take the whole estate. So who says that always the man 
takes more than the woman. In fact, here, the girl takes everything regardless of the siblings, the uncles, the, you know, chachas, khal, am, you name it, they get zero dollars. Zero dollars, right? And then you say Islam did not justify the woman? Oh, take another. When Islam says there are siblings of different genders, male and female, and the father dies, right? The, the, the mother takes uh, uh, one six, right? And then the children will take two shares to one. Why two shares to one? I'll tell you why. Because the girl in Islam has no obligation to spend a cent on her parents if she's working. And they are not working. But the boy has to. Do you know that? Has to. Right? So how can he survive? Right? Secondly, who pays the dowry? Who, pay, who pays the dowry? The woman or the man? And the woman can demand anything in the dowry or not. And us men have to pay it or not. Right? So now she's got double dipping. Third dipping. If she works and earns a wage. Listen, listen and earns a wage, the husband is under no entitlement whatsoever to take a cent of her wages without her consent. Third dipping. Right? And then we say, our women have no rights in Islam. Ajeeb, ajeeb, ajeeb. Until 1964 in London, in England. 19, sorry, 1954 in London, in London. Women were considered part of the furniture that the husband can buy and sell the way he wants. She has no say inside the home. And her wages and whatever she earns is the property of the husband. And you are coming to criticize my Islam in regard to earnings and spending and responsibilities? Learn about your Islam so you know that when this Islamophobic Come and attack your religion. You know how to answer back. Right? And when someone tells you, you are so beautiful, why do you wear the hijab? He said, it's none of your damn business. Deal with my brain, not with my body. Right? You little rascal. Huh? Why are you concerned about my beauty? My beauty is not for everyone. My beauty is for my husband when I get married. Not for you to probe into my beauty and have a look at me. What's it to you? Right? Why would you reveal... Why would I reveal my own inner and outer beauty to a complete stranger on the street? What's the logic with that? Other than that, other than that these kind of men are perverts. Right? Is there any other, any other interpretation? There's no other interpretation. Other than this guy wants to enjoy what he sees. You know what? Let me tell you something. And this is one of the worst, worst scenarios fashion designers do. I was sitting with a fashion designer one and I said to him, why is it, and please excuse me, but I need to say this point. I said, why is it you design the bikini in such a way that it covers such little part of the body? He said, Sheikh, sorry, it's not about covering. I said, what? He said, the way we design these bikinis is not to cover the, the woman's body. I said, then for what? He said, for focus. Are you following? Everything is shown, right? The only parts that are covered are the private parts, right? So that you can focus in that area. That's why they design it. 
in that way. It's not to cover. They are the least concerned with covering women. They want your mind to become devilish, satanic, in every way possible. They don't want your mind to be clean and pure. They want to pollute your mind at any cost. No matter what it takes, right? And we need to swim against such current in the world we are living in. Number six, to instill confidence and strength and strengthen the belief of the younger generation about their faith and Islam. It's not good enough to tell our children, you need to pray. They need to know why I need to pray. Right? It's not good enough to beat my child if he does not fast. No, I need to sit with him and tell him the logic behind fasting. I need to sit with my child and tell him why it is good to get married. Right? Why I go to Hajj. Why I need to exercise Amr bil Ma'roof and Nahi an al Munkar. Why, 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 why? It's not just by inheritance. Right? It is not just by inheritance. It has to be given based on education. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran says what? Fa'lam annahu la ilaha illallah. You must know that there is no God but God. How you must know? By searching and probing. Right? By getting convinced that there is only one God. Not because my dad told me. You know, the classic answer, for example, if someone asks a child, why are you praying? Ah, because my dad said so. Why are you wearing the hijab? Ah, because my mom told me. No! Your religion does not come because your mom and your father told you. Your religion comes because you have a responsibility to your creator. And you need to appreciate why your creator told you certain things. Right? And that only happens by learning. Number seven, to recruit and engage highly skilled ulama, professionals, academics, and educators in the implementation and the promotion of all the other six points. All right? You don't want to invite someone into com your community that talks about topics of no use. Right? Especially in Muharram. And I hope I'm not one of them. Because what a waste of time. Right? What a waste of time to invite a alim or a scholar into my community in the most invested time of the year, Muharram. And this guy comes and talks about issues as if he lives in a different planet. Right? Nothing relates to the challenges and the daily questions or the knowledge that our community are in dire need to know about, right? What is happening around the world, the challenges, how we deal with it. And this guy is talking about, for example, uh, I don't know, uh, things that are not related to Muharram or to Islam at all, you know? There is no connection. These 10 days are the most invested 10 days in the Islamic calendar, right? So we need to talk about things that are relatable, relatable to our youth, where our youth will say, you know what, amazing speaker, I learned so much. Now I'm going to go and implement what I've learned. Right? Because we cannot lose our kids when they come to Muharram. This is the time of the year where we need to what? Catch them, grab them, grab their attention in order that they will feel that sense of change within themselves. Number eight, 
to foster and promote interfaith programs to enhance relationship among Muslims first and among non-Muslims. So we hold a conference, invite people to our center, have something called mosque open day because your neighbors know nothing about you, right? They hear everything from Fox News. Muslims are terrorists, but if you invite them into your home, you know, there is a concept in Christianity that if you do it, that's it, you are at peace with them. You know what it is? They say, let's break to bread together. Let's break bread together. Yani, let's have a meal. When you invite yourself, your non-Muslim neighbor to a meal, you know, it means you are giving him a sign that he is at peace with you. Right? That he feels comfortable. Now, imagine if that is the way we treat non-Muslims, how are they going to be convinced that Muslims are otherwise? Right? No matter what the media says, they've dealt with you. They know you. You've opened your heart and your homes to them. Right? And you treated them with utmost respect. No matter then what they hear in the media, they will say, no, 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 no. I know a Muslim. He doesn't do that. They are good people. You know? But we cornered ourselves into ghettos. We can find it ourselves into our own space. We don't want to know anyone outside that space because we are the only ones going to Jannah. No one else is joining us in Jannah, you know? We have a license straight to go to Jannah. We don't want anyone else to come with us. No, that's not the message of Islam and what the Prophet ﷺ. And not only non-Muslims. If we have common denominators with non-Muslims, I think we have more common denominators with other school of thoughts. Right or wrong? Right? When it comes to Christians, Islam says, وَلَا تُجَادِلُوا أَهْلَ الْكِتَابِ إِلَّا بِالَّتِي هِيَ أَحْسَنُ When you want to speak to your Christian uh, counterparts, make sure you speak to them and you debate them with the best and the most immaculate means of debates. Don't abuse them. Don't swear at their gods. Don't humiliate them. I Islam is saying this. And guess what? There is a huge difference between us and the Christians, right or wrong? They believe in three gods. We believe in what? One God. But that's their belief system. I respect that. We can talk about it. But there are other things in common. So imagine what, what you have in common with your Muslim brothers that belong to a different school of thought, right? At least they believe in one God like you. They believe in the same prophet. They pray the same prayer that you pray. They fast during the month of Ramadan. How much we have in common and we don't interact with them. We don't invite them. We don't go to their mosques. We don't pray with them. We don't invite them to pray with us, you know? Imam al-Baqir says, Sallu fi masajidihim. janaizahum. Imam al-Sadiq says, I am pleased with my followers. They go and attend the funeral and they go pray in their mosques. Wasiya of Imam al-Baqir to Jabir al-Jafi, one of his companions. He says to him, do that and tell my Shias after me to do that. And visit their sick ones. Imam al-Baqir says, number nine, to work in harmony with all other Islamic centers in order to learn and benefit from their experiences. It doesn't hurt that if a center in my area or outside my area 
that has been able, for example, to raise funds and build a $20 million facility, it is worthwhile going to them and saying, hey guys, how did you raise these funds? Because we want to raise similar funds and do our own projects. I'm talking in general now, right? Huh? Or how do you run your program so successfully that around the year you have youth and people coming into your centers? What do you do? It doesn't hurt to open the channels of communication because at the end of the day, we all have one purpose. And that purpose is to serve our community and especially our youth. Now, number 10, three more points. Number 10, to implement a memorandum of understanding among English speakers to standardize the theme of various speeches. For example, in Muharram, we should advise anyone that we invite that this year's theme of Muharram is this. Let there be some sort of a common theme in all the centers so that we all benefit from the same idea gets hammered in every community, right? And then you can add subheadings in the main theme. In the main theme. Why? Because when you repeat the same theme over and over and over and over again, it sinks in. Right? It sinks in. Number 11. To prepare and train the younger generation for future leadership roles, positions. Let's face it. I'm not going to last my elders are not going to last. May Allah grant them the longest of life to keep serving the community. But one day we're going to go. If we don't train our children how to do ghusl janaza, for example, right? our kids, our youth, how to take up position of leadership to lead our jama'ah, to lead our position, to lead, sorry, our community, how do we expect they're going to run these centers after we expire? and leave this world. We need to train them. There are special training methodologies through workshops where we invite these youngsters that we see in them leadership qualities. Not everyone. There are people among our youth who have that particular insight into being leaders. We should invest in them and prepare them and groom them so that they can be the future leaders of our community. Number 12, that's the last one. The women are going to kill me today because this is, inshallah, finally about you. To empower Muslim women about their proper Islamic rights and status and that they can be leaders in their own way and right. right? They need special attention of ours. We need to promote them as well to know their rights and speak about their rights. And let me tell our women all around the world, I think people are hearing me through live streaming, right? We need to understand that the movement of feminism went wrong. Why they went wrong? Because they thought that the giver of rights are men. So they wanted to claim their rights from who? From men. That's where they went wrong. The giver of right are not men. The giver of right is Allah who gives rights to men and to women. So if you want to claim your rights, 
Don't bother claiming it from who? Men claim it from? And the only way you can claim your right from Allah is to know what Allah has given you as rights. Right? You should learn your rights. Don't go into marriage without knowing your rights. Don't sign a contract without knowing what you can put in terms of condition in that contract. You must have a contract between you and your future husband. Put conditions. Number one condition, you cannot drink. Number two condition, you cannot use drugs. Number three conditions, if you want, you cannot marry a second wife. Number four condition, you cannot move me from the country I am in unless with my consent. Right? These are rights guaranteed in Islam for women. You know, if you go to Iran, for example, you know that um, they call it Nikah uh, Nama, that book of marriage. My God, it's like a file. It's like a file, a whole file. It's that thick. You know, and all the rights are written in that Nikah Nama. You know, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can do this, you can't do that. You can, you know, one of the conditions I read once in the Nikahnam, you can't force me to do house chores, which is not the right of men. Yeah, I think this is my last day, definitely. This is my last day in Toronto, you know. Islam, Islamically speaking, a man cannot force his wife to do the routine house chores. It's not part of his rights. If the woman does it, it's because she is generous and honorable that she does it voluntarily to her husband. And on top of that, she gets abused. Ajib. Ajib. I'm under no obligation to serve you. Islam says if your wife demanded money to give suckling to your child, she's entitled to ask for that money. You know that? Do you know that? No one told you that. That if you want to breastfeed your child, you can get paid for it by your husband. And if you refuse, let him find him another wife. Not another wife, sorry. Another mother to suckle him. Right? Another mother to suckle him. Yeah, if you refuse. These are rights. Whether you will not exercise them or not, it's up to you. Right? But we're talking about what Islam has honored and given women in terms of right. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never deprive us of the opportunity to be with one another. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala unite our hearts together. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability to strengthen our relationship and our brotherhood and sisterhood wherever we can. Allahumma khfir lil muslimina wal muslimat wal mu'minina wal mu'minat al ahya'i minhum wal amwat tabi'a allahumma baynana wa baynahum bil khayrat innaka sami'un qareebun mujibu al-da'wat رب اغفر وارحم وتجاوز عما تعلم إنك أنت الأعز الأجل الأكرم ربنا لا تدع لنا ذنبا إلا غفرته ولا كربا إلا فرجته ولا مريضا إلا شفيته ولا غائبا إلا رددته ولا حاجة من حوائج الدنيا لك فيها والآخرة لك فيها رضا ولنا فيها صلاح إلا قضيتها لنا برحمتك يا أرحم الراحمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين